All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from the UK. His name is James Riley. He published a book a couple years ago. The title of the book is The Bad Trip, Dark Omens, New Worlds, and the End of the 60s. It's a fascinating book. It really uh, goes in detail on many aspects of that tumultuous decade, things that I didn't know about. So I learned a lot reading the book, which I finished this morning. Mr. Riley is the Muriel Bradbook Official Fellow of English Literature at Girton College, Cambridge, which is one of the 31 constituent colleges of the University of Cambridge, where he works on modern and contemporary literature, popular film, and 1960s culture. It's widely published and is written for The Times, The I, Big Issue North, 14 Times, Vertigo, Monolith, and One-on-One, and his blog is titled Residual Noise. So, Mr. Riley, are you there? I'm here, William. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard you here in the States or familiar with you, can you talk a little bit about your background and what kind of led you into this book, The Bad Trip? Yeah, absolutely. No problem. Well, as I said, thanks for having me and uh, hello to everyone who's listening. Um, thanks for tuning in. Um, my name's James Riley. I am a, uh, if you heard there, I'm a fellow of English at, at, at Girton. So my, my kind of disciplinary background is English studies, English literature, uh, but I've always been interested in the more modern and contemporary material with uh, with an emphasis, I guess, on the, I suppose, the undertoes, the things that are sort of somehow left off the map. I'm interested in what puts things to margins, how kind of counter trends emerge. I'm very interested in, in popular culture and how literature sort of soaks up ideas from what we might call the fringes. I suppose that's what I'm generally interested in. Uh, researching and teaching literature. Um, so my training is in English literature as a discipline. Um, in terms of interest in, in the 1960s, it's, it is always something I've been interested in from uh, quite a young age. Uh, I grew up listening to loads of really great 60s music, uh, very much thanks to my father's record collection, which I think is a way that lots of people get into that kind of music. And uh, I, I grew up also during the what in the UK is called the sort of Britpop era, sort of nineties, uh, which when there were all kinds of bands like Oasis and uh, Blair uh, were very popular at the time. Um, and I, I, growing up and being interested in that, I was always I was, I was always kind of fascinated by the sort of origins of that and where the reference points were. And I thought I, I guess these these were my sort of entryways into it. Uh, and at the time, as a teenager, there was also uh, a program on both the radio and the TV in the UK called Sounds of the 60s, a kind of BBC show, which showed loads of really great clips in the 1960s, played loads of really great music on the radio each weekend. Um, and I was always really interested in the way that it, the tonally it would move really quickly from a kind of sparky, bubbly pop to really quite dark and sort of strange material and how that tonal shift could also be in the career of the same kind of bands, you know, um, bands like the Rolling Stones, bands like the Beatles, they seem to move through these arcs across the decade from sort of um, uh, poppy kind of material, bubblegum almost pop, to um, really quite strange, often discordant, almost semi-apocalyptic images. And that always really interested me. And the way in which they would coexist very easily uh, very uh, interested me a lot, almost as if this wasn't really a, a, a dark side, like a kind of, it wasn't really an alternative. It was somehow inscribed into the culture of the 60s itself. And I think the moment that always seems to come to mind was 
on these clip shows from music shows and Top of the Pops and all this other kind of stuff, you'd have things like uh, the New Seekers, uh, and then very quickly followed by um, footage of people like the crazy world of Arthur Brown talking about being the god of hellfire with his with his head on fire, and this was right there on the this was right there in sort of tea time uh, uh, mainstream TV, and and it, it, you don't then have to look very far to find sort of roots of that in the and reflections of that in what we might call an avant garde and an underground filmmakers like Kenneth Anger we might talk about later on. So the coexistence, I think, of the light and the dark in the culture of the 1960s, the way in which that had proliferated into uh, almost a kind of nostalgia industry of the 60s, which, of course, was my way into it. I'm not a, not a, I'm not a direct witness of this. I'm, I'm, I'm very much um, very sort of transparent about the fact that this is, this is an engagement with a certain degree of nostalgia, but a certain tonality of it. Um, so I really wanted to sort of, uh, as I as the opportunity came to do this book, and as the ideas uh, sort of began to cohere together, I really wanted to, in some ways, tell the stories of that tonal shift across the decade. This sense that there was some kind of decline taking place. This sort of movement, this one particular understanding of the of the decade as a movement towards catastrophe. Sort of tell the story of that, question it a little bit reflect on it and and um sort of hopefully reflect on what that actually might ultimately say about the decade because seeing the 60s as a decade that sort of inexorably declines into disaster uh, and seeing it almost in tragic terms it seems to me that that's another way of highlighting its exceptional nature it was another way of saying how sort of exceptional and superb this decade is because what else is there to expect of the 1960s than this almost sort of glorious uh, supernova-like explosion right at the end of it. It seems the most appropriate end in the sort of popular memory of the 1960s um, because obviously the alternative to that is is the, the thing that's probably harder to think about, which is the, the kind of <laughs> unexceptional movement in, into suburbia beigeness in the 70s, which right. is probably the greater tragedy of it. I mean, it's an incredible era because that decade is so much different than the 50s. And then I think you really capture in your book that that growth of this promise of the 60s, but also this kind of shadow or dark side or spectral mm-hmm. element that yeah. in 16, by 69, there was so much change in other people's mm-hmm. ideas. What do you think that what brought about this this change or this uh, this kind of darker element of the, of the 60s, which you titled The Bad Trip, what do you think brought that about? Uh, well, in one sense, you can see it as a, a sort of failed utopianism. Uh, you can see it as a as a kind of inevitable short termism of a lot of very promising ideas. If you think about what we might refer to as the so-called counterculture, broadly understood in both the UK and America, as I'm sure most of your your listeners are aware, you had this bringing together of lots of very dynamic forces on the basis of uh, of uh, the newly educated young post-war generation. Um, but a lot of those projections and a lot of those hopes and a lot of those aspirations seem to revolve around the idea of youth, which is always going to be transient and temporary, which is always going to be difficult to sustain. So even at its most utopian, there's a kind of temporiness to it. There's a there's a short-termism to it, which I think... Um, 
invites a certain kind of sense of decline, a kind of withering, uh, but and a sense that something is running out, even if it turns into something else. So I think the youth element of it has got a lot to do with it. I think there is a, also a political shift at the same time. Um, there is, you can show a shift, certainly within the left wing, from a sort of non-violent um, um, mode of protest to a much more aggressive, a much more militant uh, sense of direct political action. And in some sense, that comes from a frustration within the left itself, uh, a kind of impatience, a kind of a desire to widen the targets. Um, but it is also coming, if you like, in response to the reaction on the part of, quote-unquote, the establishment. Uh, because I think this is also something we sort of need to keep in mind when we're thinking about the political and cultural situation of the 1960s. Whilst we sort of zero in on that decade as this period of emancipation and liberation in all kinds of ways, it's shot through with violence, it's shot through with discourse all the way through the decade. This is a decade which sort of, in, in some ways, begins with a, a spectacular assassination and it is suffused with global violence. So it is, it's an extremely discordant phase. And in some ways, those kind of utopian hopes were, were there and sparkling in terms of their emphasis on love because the world seemed to be sorely lacking it at the time. Right. Um, Say again, so sorry. Had, just sorry to interrupt, but it's like Vietnam, the backdrop of nuclear bombs or nuclear uh, holocaust is really right around the corner. So these people are operating within that environment. I mean, in a sociological sense. And uh, maybe you can talk a little about people maybe in the States don't know as much about this guy. Natal, you titled one of your chapters, Bomb Culture. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about him and his impact? Yeah, Jeff Nuttall, uh, who wrote a book called Bomb Culture in the late 1960s. Um, and I think this kind of encapsulates what I was kind of implying, the fact that when we think about the sort of currency of love, for example, and the way in which that gets a kind of uh, a lot of emphasis placed on it in the decade, it's not just an invitation to hedonism, if you like. It's not just an invitation and a, and a, and a kind of relaxing into pleasure. It, it's there in the sense of th- there's a there is a real humanitarian need in the period. This is a uh, a, a decade which uh, is is consumed with a kind of nuclear anxiety and it's consumed with images of violence and a sense of violence and, and Nuttall was really picking up on this. Jeff Nuttall is a, a was, sadly was, an, an artist and a poet and a teacher and an educator who was very much engaged with the London-based uh, the word that they were using at the time was underground but we might refer to it as a kind of uh, UK arm of the American counterculture um, he was involved in a newspaper called International Times, a kind of underground newspaper. And he was also involved in, in a sort of series of kind of very, often very violent, often quite scatological um, performance pieces in and around London. And then in his later years, he, he returned to the northwest of England, where he's originally from, but carried on uh, writing, um, carried on uh, producing poetry. What, one thing that is maintained throughout, throughout his poetry is this image, a very sort of visceral, corporeal, often very violent imagery. And it's not so much violent imagery in the sense of a kind of assertive, aggressive desire to attack others. It's, it's imagery of the body often in pain. It's imagery of the body undergoing some kind of transformation. It's the body moving out of its, of its, of its sort of parameters and, and he, whilst he was writing this poetry and developing this imagery, he was also producing a sort of little magazine that he called My Own Mag, his own sort of publication. 
and he was and he was publishing American poets. He was publishing Allen Ginsberg. He was one of the first to publish William Burroughs in the UK. And the pages of My Own Mag are they're they're slashed. They're sort of they're split apart. He would cut them. He would burn them. And there's something there as a re- as 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 a reflection of William Burroughs' cut up ideas and cut up technique about getting language to say things in a very serendipitous way. But on the same level, it's also the sense that you know, for him, kind of language can't really bear the brunt of these horrors that he's seeing around him. He was acutely aware of the visceral images of of of, of, of Vietnam, the the impact of napalm. Uh, the, on the 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 impact of seeing those first images of of, of street executions of of piles of bodies, he's he's also coming out of the Second World War with all the associated imagery there, uh, and also the, the 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 great nuclear shadow. The, the he refers to the generation as being um, uh, napalm, uh, a sort of post napalm, post Hiroshima generation. So for for Nuttall, the the appropriate response is to kind of really sort of foreground this sense of violence. And, and it's not, it's not nihilistic. It's not misanthropic. It's actually deeply humanitarian in the sense of he's really trying to convey um, the, the sort of injustice and kind of humanistic horror at the way in which the military industrial complex, uh, geopolitics, global war is really sort of um, violating uh, the human form. So uh, in his book, Bomb Culture, it becomes a kind of primer of a lot of these ideas that you can see in his poetry, but it's also a sort of autobiographical movement through the the UK underground, where he's sort of, of pushing against and questioning uh, instances where he's not really, where in, from his perspective, he's not really seeing enough kind of emphasis on this sense of horror, this sense of atrocity. So he's he's often trying to punch at what he sees as hypocrisy. He's often trying to argue against moments of, of what he sees as being ineffective political action. And um, it's also like a clarion call for a sense of disgust. Um, uh, Nuttall would, would say that, you know, people need to be kind of more disgusted, more kind of outraged, more kind of horrified. Again, not as a way of, of sort of glorying in the negative, but but to become aware of precisely what is happening in the world. So he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a figure who's often quite provocative, often quite difficult, and he's often seen as someone who seems to be interested in shock for shock's sake. Um, but buried within that, there's a, there's, a, there's a profound kind of love and respect for the human form, and, it, and, it, and it's, a, it's a body of work which is defined by outrage. Right. And another person who, who pops up in that chapter who I didn't know much about, his name is Peter Whitehead. And he's kind of like an uh, observer of all of these events that happened in the 60s, not just in the, from the UK, but while he was in the US. Can you talk about the importance of Peter Whitehead? Yeah, I was really trying to make a point about Peter Whitehead because you you you, you probably see uh, that he's, I kind of come back to his story quite a few times over over the course of the book. And we sort of chart him through the 1960s and into the 70s. And he's a, he's a figure who, who sort of embodies the, the narrative that I've been trying to get at. He's someone who, he's a filmmaker, he's a documentary filmmaker. Uh, he, um, he's originally from Liverpool and then he becomes the sort of classic post-war scholarship boy. 
uh, he, he finds himself in the Slade School of Art in the early 1960s, gets involved in film, uh, gets involved in documentary films, cinema verite, uh, and then he end, he's sort of big break once he he moves through the sort of journeyman uh, uh, experience of making pop promos and newsreels and so on and so forth. He gets the opportunity to film a large-scale poetry read in the Albert Hall in 1965, uh, which Allen Ginsberg and lots of other American and, and British Pearl poets... Pearl Getty. Pearl Getty. Pearl Getty, Getty, yeah. We discussed yeah. two months ago, yeah, sorry. Absolutely, yeah. And Lawrence Pearl Getty was there, Gregory Corso... And this Albert Hall event is a kind of meeting point between the sort of British and, and American underground poetry. And it's this real kind of galvanizing event. There's thousands of people there and it becomes iconic. In some ways, it sort of kickstarts a lot of what we have now come to see as of the 60s, broadly understood. Um, and it turns into this, this, this wonderful documentary called Holy Communion. It becomes quite successful. It wins awards. And Whiter then goes on to make another a number of other documentaries over the 60s, but they become increasingly kind of uh, conflicted. They become increasingly provocative. He gets more and more interested in ideas of violence, protest, similar to Nuttall in this sense, the way, and also but the way in which images, cameras, the media play into that. And he, he becomes, particularly towards the end of the 60s, when he was making a film called The Fall in New York, which is ostensibly about the slide of the protest movement into direct action, into a much more kind of violent confrontational mode. Um, you know, he's interested in the way in which, uh, you know, can he remain neutral as a, as a documentarian? Is he kind of implicated in the violence that he sees? You know, can he, he, he sort of meditates and reflects on the idea of the camera as being some kind of weapon? It's that which you load and you shoot with it. And he gradually becomes involved in that which he's filming. Um, so over the, his work over the course of the 60s, this brief but kind of incendiary body of work over the course, essentially the latter half of the 60s, becomes this kind of really powerful and potent index to the sort of sense of decline in terms of utopian hopes and sense of an increase in violence. Um, and so it's a really useful resource and he becomes a really uh, interesting figure to chart that, that movement. But what I actually find most interesting about Whitehead is he then goes on through a series of, of kind of spectacular disappearances and reappearances. He kind of disappears out of view at the end of the 1960s, he kind of goes invisible. Um, and then he starts to pop up in the strangest of circumstances or kind of most unexpected of circumstances. He's, he moves through France. He's sort of on the periphery of the Rolling Stones. He ends up making extremely odd films in a variety of French chateaux. Um, and then he, he ends up being a, um, a sort of royal falconer to Prince Khaled al-Faisal. Um, and he has this incredible, uh, into, the, into the 1970s and 1980s, incredible career as this sort of globe-trotting falconer. And then he disappears again, and then he reappears in the, the 1990s as this novelist or sort of visionary pseudo-magician Um who he writes all these strange texts about his life in the 60s. And, and the, the whole life, the whole career uh, is documented via, via a, a, a wonderful archive that I worked on for a number of years, which is now at, at De Montfort University here in the UK. Um, so I was really keen to, to get some of Whitehead's story in the book because he's, he's this sort of lightning rod figure. He's always seems to be in the right place at the right time. 
he moves through all these these sectors, all these scenes, and he's always documenting it, and he's always very sort of critical about his role uh, in those scenes. Um, and it's a really kind of interesting story. Um, but he's this this. I mean, I'm happy to talk more about him because he's he's um, well. I, he's I a, think he's interesting. He's a magical figure. Right, but he's done like all these documentaries. He did a documentary with Led Zeppelin. He was yeah. in London right at the peak of kind of like the new counterculture. He'd yeah. seen all these celebrities. So uh, really a fascinating guy, not not too well known, my understanding here in the States. But yeah, if you yeah. want to expound some more on on what uh, what he said and what he did, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I suppose the work that he's probably best known for is, as I said, this, uh, this docu- very long documentary called The Fall. And that's just had its 50th anniversary. Um, and that's a really important piece for him because that's really the piece where he's really assessing it's really assessing his role as a filmmaker and the connection between his role as a filmmaker and uh, counterculture is not the word that he uses, it's protest culture the word that he uses. And he's fascinated by the way in which the protest culture as, as he sees it has been sort of co-opted and neutralised by the media um, and he goes over to America. He's, he's invited over to America in, in uh, first of all, in 1967, and then later on in 1968 when he begins to to to, to sort of begin to put the film together. And um, he's initially invited to make a kind of poppy sort of um, uh, sort of almost a kind of trailer film for kind of New York by Night. He'd he'd recently made a film called Tonight Let's All Make Love in London which pretty much laid down the language of the visual language of what we might associate with 60s and swinging London. It was, it was um, sort of mods and nightclubs and um, changing of the guard and a kind of modish Englishness. And then there was a playfulness to it. I mean, it wasn't without seriousness, but there was a, there was a sort of, there was a sort of modish playfulness to it. Uh, And he was initially invited to do something very similar for New York. Um, This kind of, um, an Englishman's view of the city that never sleeps. That was that was what was put to him. Um, and he then started moving around the city, looking at all kinds of art events, looking at all kinds of performances. But he saw he saw things be, being very kind of confused, very violent, very visceral. He spent a night going through Greenwich Village with the with the police. He and they were regaling him with tales of violence and murder and how the 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 murder rate of New York was skyrocketing at the time. And then he, he got to he became involved with the student protests around Columbia University that then blossomed into an occupation. Um, and he found himself actually in the occupied building, filming the events from the inside. And this was a sort of a sort of turning point between the shift from uh, peaceful protest that had, up until that point largely defined the anti-war movement sectors of the counterculture. It's very much where we get those ideas of flower power from. It's flowers in gun barrels and so on and so forth. Whereas this was this was beginning to be a lot more militant and the, the occupation was was broken by a violent intervention on the part of, of, of the police and, and White had films it all. He's there filming it all. And uh, there's a wonderful sequence towards the end of the film, which again, it's one of those sequences which really kind of sums up a lot of what I was trying to get at in the book where the protesters are aware that they're, they're about to have their occupation um, disrupted by the police. They're aware that they're about to be arrested. They're aware that this confrontation is probably going to be very violent. 
uh, and they sort of give themselves to it and they kind of celebrate it in some way and they're, they're dancing in this in this occupied office building and then someone turns up with a with some bagpipes and starts playing and it, you get this beautiful droning sort of wonderful celebratory musical performance which is so full of kind of ecstasy and joy and kind of hope and then gradually you can hear a a, a banging echoing down the corridors and it's the police breaking through and the music fades and weapons appear and these people who we then the next time we see these people who've just been dancing and and sort of celebrating themselves and and this this the, the their sort of their sort of commonality their communality in this space they're then sort of they're they're bloodied and beaten and hurt and injured and uh, it suddenly becomes night of the living dead these kind of sort of uh, zombified characters these sort of walking corpses and it's a really horrifying moment in one sense. In one sense, it works really well to show, to, to show a sea change, um, and it's one of those kind of very powerful visual moments that tend that seem to accumulate around 1969, which is like here's the pivot point, here's where we go from uh, peacefulness to violence. Here's another Altamont, here's another Manson. Um, but if you also step back from it, you can see elsewhere where you know this moment is only really a kind of metonym for a much wider. Uh, uh, scenario of violence and a much wider sense of discord that happens to come to a crisis moment at that point. And I think, I think yeah. White really understood that. Yeah, but he saw it firsthand. So he's in the States for the de- the murder of Martin Luther King, right? That's yeah. 4th, 1968, then RFK. Yeah. yeah. And he's also following that same step that a lot of the left moved toward direct kind of violent action, to, like from, I think it was the Students for Democratic Society to the Weathermen. Yeah, so all these characters. So he's seeing all of that, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's pretty remarkable that he was there for that. Can you talk? Did he was it Whitehead who was uh, also involved in this kind of new kind of art actionism and destructivism? Was it was he experiencing that in New York at the time? Uh, he experienced a little bit about it. I mean, he he didn't he he, he was very taken with um, a performance uh, mounted by a group called the Destructivists. Um, who uh, and this is a sort of central part of the film uh, and he saw one of their performances in, in New York um, and, which involved a uh, the destruction the kind of violent destruction of a piano and also the, 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 the destruction of a live chicken at the same time, the killing of a live chicken and it's this, this extremely kind of uh, aggressive and very disturbing moment um, and you, there's a rationale behind this, and there's certainly a, there's a rationale behind the destructivists who, who saw their work as a kind of semi sort of shamanic uh, process. This very this this process of um, almost kind of ecstatic of, of sort of breaking down the body and its of its and its parameters. Um, but there was also a kind of political intent to it as well. There was also a, a kind of uh, a sort of capitalistic critique going on in a lot of their work and and that 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 tallies with a number of other sort of performers uh, and groups that Wattab was certainly aware of um but didn't film directly but he was sort of putting the connections together himself it, it mirrors the work of um Gustav Metzger um the destruction in art symposium which was happening uh in in the UK just a few years before um Wattab got to New York and there's a parallel group in Vienna called the Vienna Actionists, um, 
who again engaged in these very sort of visceral, very bodily oriented, often public uh, performance art, which involved bodily fluids, which involved what we'd now see as self-harm, which would which would in, which were set up to be again very provocative, um, uh, self-consciously transgressive. Um, but very much in the mould of the the ideas that that Nuttall, Jeff Nuttall was trying to get at in bomb culture. He talks about a lot of these artists as well, and he he gathers a lot of these names together. Uh, that these artists were sort of working in sort of separate nodes, but it's it's sort of people like Jeff Nuttall who were bringing them together and sort of analysing them uh, together. And he, again, he saw them as these these artists who were really trying to. Uh, shock people out of a certain kind of insulated complacency um, to realize and to think about the, the the limits placed on the self, the way in which the self is at the mercy of and is uh, re- constantly receiving all kinds of uh, forces and forms of damage and the way in which the, 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 the sort of post-war uh, uh, society and culture is dealing with the kind of psychic damage uh, of, of World War Two and its immediate aftermath. Um, so, you know, there's you could draw a line from, say, uh, North America right across Europe at the time, and you will be able to see these uh, sort of parallel groupings of artists who are at the same time working through these ideas, through forms of performance which are damaging, overtly destructive, and part of them is a, is a sort of rejection of materialism. Uh, you have other forms of them, like artists like John Latham, who would be building towers that are designed to collapse and and towers of books that collapse. In one sense, there's a real kind of rejection of the material object. But in another sense, there's this really quite uh, uh, transgressive humanitarianism, I suppose, the way the one way to put it. Right. And one of the interesting things I learned from your book is that Yodorowsky started out of those kind of uh, art circles before he even made El Topo or the Holy Mountain, right? Is the yeah, that's right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sorry, I talked over you there, please. Can, awesome. you, Can you just talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah. Jodorowsky, before he made El Topo, he was involved in something called the Panic Movement, uh, which was very much in the mold of the the performers I've been describing, very much in the mold of the Vienna, Vienna actionists. And again, he's a you know he's someone who's working out of a very specific milieu, um, but it seems at the time to tally with what else is going on in these other these other contexts and other locations. And Panic Movement was again this this idea to insert the body into this sense of performance. Uh, Jodorowsky was his kind of take on on uh the sort of theatrical moment was that it was very very uh um what's it, inauthentic uh to purport to imitate something meant that you were moving away from a kind of essence from a kind of authenticity and he wanted to inspire the dramatic moment and the moment of performance with this real sense of uh, bodily intensity um some of this is coming from his own interests in ritual some of this is coming from his own interests in in sort of magical practices where there's a real sort of projection of the self and a projection of the will um and these performances would take the form of usually long semi-improvised performances which were sort of like psychodramas uh another way of seeing them would be happenings 
uh, they will be given a certain kind of organicness in the sense of of let them go where they will. These are other performances, unfortunately, which involve <laughs> involve the death of animals. Unfortunately, there's a lot of there's a lot of snakes, a lot of chickens who do not come off very well uh, in these performances. Uh, the both the destructivists and the panic movement seem to have absolutely no problem in killing snakes and chickens uh, on stage, um, and it often involves lots of lots of nudity, uh, uh, um, uh, essentially sex acts on stage, um, and it was a sense of allowing these performances and these. And these moments, these authentic moments to uh, play themselves out to their fullest logic, uh, to sort of burn out, if you like. And those ideas filter into Jodorowsky's filmmaking practice. El Topo is in some ways a, a, a sort of panic film. It's there to induce a kind of visceral response on the part of the viewer. Um, it's not just sort of jarring in its kind of horrific content. It was meant to be something that would create a uh, a sort of intense sensory engagement. And I think it, it's it's its emergence and its popularity as a as a midnight movie was, I think, uh, aided by that content. But I think the film gained. I think that also helped it uh, to to carry out that to carry out that role because it became a kind of event film that you would go and see at a certain place at a certain time when you were in a certain state. Um, and all the, the sort of jarring imagery, the soundtrack, the, the, these, the, the incredibly vivid arterial spurts of blood that move all the way through that film. It's meant to be an attempt to kind of get beyond representation. That's what, uh, that's what Jodorowsky was really interested in. And be, I mean, talking about getting in the right state, I think the, the outside of the political uh, chaos and cultural chaos, but the 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 impact of LSD in the '60s, I think, was like an internal atomic bomb. Can you talk a little bit about how LSD became uh, an important kind of uh, tie between so many of the figures in your book, but also the the kind of uh, how it also like I think you wrote in your book like it could be positive, but also extremely negative experience. Can you talk about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, LSD has its own uh, history as a substance. And we have uh, people like Aldous Huxley and Timothy Leary uh, to thank for it, its movement into uh, the general uh, populace. It obviously has this conspiratorial history as well when we're thinking about the uh, MK Ultra program and its its use, uh, alleged use by the CIA when we're thinking about this resonance of it being uh, a possible truth serum or a non-lethal weapon, but in terms of its of its filtration into what we might call uh, the counterculture, um, LSD and LSD is a kind of primer for and a catalyst to uh, what's broadly understood as the psychedelic experience. And and uh, I, I'm sure this is all very familiar uh, to your to, to your listeners. And but what was kind of interesting me and the sort of angle that I was trying to take on it. Uh, in, in the book and the, the sort of resonances that I was trying to pick up on is the kind of things that was coming out of Aldous Huxley's work where he, he coined the term um, psychedelic with Humphrey Osmond um, he, in order to get away from this sense that, that LSD was mimicking psychosis. He really disagreed with the idea that it was psychotomimetic, that it would it would sort of induce a kind of temporary madness or a temporary sense of derangement. For them, they, they had a much more kind of spiritual understanding of it. They felt that this was actually inducing 
almost if you like hitherto unknown hitherto unexperienced altered states a, a, a movement into another state of being which we could parallel with or link to a spiritual experience so it was not so much an imitator but a generator of experience um and when we when we see the movement from lsd as a quote-unquote psychedelic drug into psychedelia what we have with psychedelia is is a, a range of cultural forms that are there to in some way approximate that experience approximate that incredibly subjective and changeable experience with all those color gradations and different forms of distortion and so on and so forth so it's, it's in some ways an attempt to kind of make it manifest but at the same time uh, it's a way to also uh, generate further effects it's a way to sort of play into uh, the use of lsd it's a case of uh to to use a quote from spaceman three it's a case of uh, uh taking drugs to make art to uh, take drugs to that it's it's part of this <laughs> feedback loop where psychedelic music psychedelic art is is to attempt to represent these states but induce them further if you engage with that while you are uh, experiencing and having taken LSD. So we're, I suppose where we might begin to see something of a, a kind of politics here, and I guess this is what the sort of direction that interests me when I was putting the book together, beyond the sort of intense sensory experiences and beyond the what we might see as the sort of pleasurable aspect of it, it, it it's something that causes you to rethink your sense of self it is something that causes you to radically rethink your sense of being and by extension your kind of ontology the visionary aspect of lsd and by extension psychedelia is not just a, a sense of thinking through sensory distortions that a, that a substance creates it sort of confronts you with the possibility of of an other world and i think that's what the i think that's what the the, the, the countercultural impetus uh, picked up on the idea that it is possible to think and to imagine and to envisage another state of being. And, and LSD was a bridge to that. Um, but the, the, the more sinister element of it, and I think this is what we see in the Manson circle, is that it, that the movement to that other world requires a, in some way um, is built upon a certain opening of the self, uh, a, a, a breaking down of certain barriers, uh, what we of, of say psychological resistance. It puts one into a, a, a potentially extremely vulnerable, a potentially very changeable state, and a potentially very receptive state. This is what Timothy Leary referred to when he was talking about set and setting. Uh, where you are when you take LSD, the mood you're in, the surrounding stimulus very much affects the nature of the experience that you that you go on to have. Um, someone like Manson seemed to understand this and would use the LSD both as a kind of sacrament, um, but also something that would he could use to gain a degree of influence on those who made up the family. It would be kind of inscribed into their their kind of routine, their kind of uh, group mechanism. Um, but Manson would also would, would stand slightly back from taking it. He would observe the other members of the family take it, and that, that put him in a, a very strong um, programmatic role. He could manipulate things. He could programmatize things. So it has enormous, if you like, visionary potential, and I think that leads to a, a kind of politics of inner space that leads to a potentially utopian politics because it does require you to rethink 
these normal parameters. But the darkness of it is not just the sort of potential sensory horror of what we might call a bad trip. The more is it's the ethical and moral darkness linked to the the possibility it opens for someone to significantly manipulate somebody else. Right. And that was kind of one of the backdrops of LSD coming to the public. I think you wrote about a doctor in LA who said this shouldn't be brought out to mass usage. And Leary kind of uh, was the counterpoint to that position and kind of seeded it out everywhere. I think it's also interesting that Huxley died same day as JFK taking LSD, you know, his wife is dripping in his mouth. But yeah, yeah, I think that just added to the craziness of that decade was this whole element of, you know, this political turmoil, but also throwing the LSD and then almost becomes a loop. LSD LSD creates more political turmoil. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to cover? We're at about 45 minutes. Anything else you'd like to uh, talk about your book? I mean, I I think uh, the the only thing else that I'd I think that might be of interest uh, uh, to your listeners. I think if we if we're thinking about the moving into potentially unfamiliar uh, territory again, just going back to the 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 Whitehead material. Um, Whitehead's a fairly uh, you know he's a, he's a character who's, who's, whose work is gaining uh, increased interest. But uh, I don't just mention this just to harp on about the same uh, the same uh, topics. But he has a film that he mentioned he makes in the later 1970s called Fire in the Water. Uh, and if anyone in, who's listening to this has, be, has finds Whitehead interesting or finds some of the ideas that we've been talking about today interesting, I'd really recommend people to try and seek that out. It's quite obscure. It's not that easy to see. But there's some there's quite a lot of writing about it. Um, and it's it's a very interesting piece that comes at the, the very end of the period that I'm talking about in the book. He, he releases it after some delay in 1977. And in the way that the fall in the late 60s really kind of summed up, I think, some of the, the political discord. Fire in the Water, which is a much more in, intimate, much quieter film, much more solipsistic. It's about a sort of retreat of, of a, a whitehead analog into the, a countryside location. Um, but it becomes very intense and very hallucinatory uh, towards the end of it. I think that kind of sums up what we were, we were talking about uh, just, just uh, a moment ago about the psychedelic experience about being in terms of its political possibilities about imagining another world. And I think, well, although if you, when you see uh, fire in the water, there's nothing overtly there about LSD per se, but I would say that it's a very psychedelic film. Um, it's visual language is perhaps not what we might expect of psychedelia. There's no, there's no neon sort of day glow colors. There's none of the, the kind of poster art that we might associate with it. Um, but it's a film which is prof- sort of profoundly uh, interested in trying to hypothesize and think about moving beyond, going into another world, trying to revive things. Um, and I think it. it, it when I when I knew Whitehead, I, I knew him quite well. Uh, and when I was working on his archive, and he often really didn't really speak about this film very much. He he saw it as a kind of something of a, of a coda, something of a kind of almost like an afterthought. And I think he he didn't prioritize it and didn't really speak about it as much as it, as these other films that he made during the sixties. But I think when I was re-watching it for this book and thinking over it again, it seemed to really tie a lot of things together. And I think it ultimately kind of crystallized a lot of what he was interested in doing. Um, and uh, and it, it, it's also about how the 
the filmmaking process can also be implicated in this psychic process of of uh projecting oneself of moving into another way of existence so uh if this if, if our chat tonight has in, inspired anyone uh to think about to think about whited in relation to these themes i'd really recommend that as something as a kind of adventurous choice for people to seek out gotcha and he kind of just passed away recently too 2019 he had a long uh, like you said, many chaptered life, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, we you just lost him just recently. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was it was it was sad to hear. Yeah. So, <clears throat> um, is there anything else you'd like to add, or anything contact information? Where can people? Yeah, I have my blog called Residual Noise, uh, which there's lots of stuff on there in terms of the research that I do. There's lots of kind of uh, sort of side notes to the book. There's a few things about the people that I've been writing. Uh, about I post there regularly, so uh, anyone's very welcome to uh, uh, have a look at that and get in touch through there. And I am also on Twitter um, at End of Sixties. So despite all the things that I say about cults <laughs> in the book, you're welcome to follow me via uh, <laughs> Twitter. Awesome. So thanks so much for the interview. Really brilliant book. I highly recommend this book. Again, the title of the book is The Bad Trip: Dark Omens, New Worlds, and the End of the Sixties by James Riley. James, thank you so much. Thank you, William. All My right. pleasure. All right, bye-bye. Still there?